At the center of the universe is a relationship. At the center of the universe is a relationship. I first heard those words as I was sitting under the teaching of Daryl Johnson at Regent College. That statement is not about what you might find at the literal center of space, as if we could know where the center actually is. It's not a statement made from astrophysics. It is meaning that the center of the universe is all of the things that exist, all of the things that matter. At that center of all that matters is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the stars and the worlds and biological life and language and culture, before all things that that we are aware of, there was a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that relationship, there's completeness of love. There's fulfillment of relationship. There's awesomeness in power. And out of this love came the impulse to create. And in one tiny corner of the universe, in one of billions of galaxies, in one tiny solar system in that galaxy, on one planet perfectly aligned in relationship to the sun and the moon, on its beautiful little axis, on this speck in the universe, God created life. Now, whatever else was created, because it's a big universe, we don't know very much at all about what else is created. Whatever else was created, whatever life may exist out there, we know that the relationship at the center of the universe, at least we know he he created us. But there's, there's more to the story than that. The center, or the relationship at the center of the universe created us to be in relationship with the relationship at the center of the universe. I'm not gonna say that again, that's a mouthful. And in the first century AD, at this tiny outpost in the vastness of space and time, the relationship at the center of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that's amazing. Jesus, one of the Trinity, the one who manifests the character and glory of the relationship at the center of the universe, came to rescue us from our failed vocation as bearing God's image. And by becoming human himself and living in unbroken relationship with the Father, Jesus fulfilled our vocation and he added all of us to his account. And so through trust in him, we can be rightly related to the relationship at the center of the universe. Now, for the past several months leading up to Advent, at least, we've been exploring Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, And this teaching is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's possibly the most comprehensive and concentrated teaching of Jesus about what human flourishing can look like. And today we're going to begin the central section of the Sermon on the Mount. This text that we're going to start today is right in the actual literary middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now in life, it's usually the center that holds the most value or holds the most weight, like the center of a donut, right? You find the jelly or a Timbit, depending on like what kind of donut you like. Uh, 
in the center, it's in the center of the Tootsie Pop that you get the Tootsie Roll, even though I don't like Tootsie Roll, so I kind of like the crusty outer side better. But you know what I mean? Like, you got to get to the middle to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. And in the pomegranate, everybody knows the good stuff's in the middle. Those little juicy seeds are in there. Okay, anyway. So, so when, you, when you come to the center of the teaching from the relationship at the center of the universe, what might you expect to find there? What's the most important thing that Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, one might guess that the most weighty, the most significant thing of all things is that Jesus might want to tell us something practical, or he might want to tell us to seek justice, or he might want to say, serve your neighbor, or share the good news of Jesus to others, or something, anything, hands on, tell me what to do, Jesus. But at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the relationship at the center of the universe gives us a prayer. And when you think about it, if you are rightly related to the relationship at the center of the universe, you begin to care about the things and the people and the values and the goals that God cares about. And you're going to be led to worship and to seek justice and to serve others and so on and so on if you are rightly related to the relationship at the center of the universe. And this prayer will help us to do that. As we're going to see over the next several weeks, the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray covers every aspect of human life. It touches on worship and justice and healing and forgiveness and politics and the transformation of the whole world. But before we dive into the prayer itself, let's pay attention to the buildup. Before Jesus teaches us to pray, he frees us from the burden of some unhelpful ways to pray. Jesus begins this central section with the phrase, as you pray, do not be like the Gentiles. Do not be like the Gentiles who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus begins teaching us to pray by teaching us how not to pray. We are not to pray like the Gentiles, like the pagans. Most pagan prayers in Jesus' day were very long and very flowery. Flattery was the key. Pagans believed that they had to woo their gods into answering their prayers, either through flattery, oh, most high Zeus, who walks on petals of roses. You know, it's like they have paragraphs and paragraphs. In fact, if you're interested later this week, I will email you some. I've got some from historical records. It's just like Oh, it's sickening. But like, it's just, oh, you know, like these long prayers. So flattery was one way of getting the gods and goddesses' attention. The second thing was magic. So saying the right words the right way, with the right enunciation and the right syllables, all of that mattered in pagan prayer. And the third thing is persistence. You had to say it over and over again. And usually it was some combination of all three of those things. Flattery with the right words said the right way over and over again. And the underlying assumption that Jesus is challenging is this. It's the assumption that through human effort, we can manipulate or coerce God into doing what we want. 
Who hasn't felt that way from time to time? Because we're influenced by all these other things. If I just pray harder, maybe God will hear me. If I just pray more, God will pay attention and do what I'm asking. If I just use the right words, maybe I don't know how to pray, so I'm disqualified. All of these things are very me-centric when I think that way. It treats prayer to God kind of like rubbing a lamp and hoping that the genie inside will answer my wishes. Jesus says that we don't need to act like the pagans because God isn't like those gods. God is the Father who is close at hand and he knows our needs even before we ask him. And this is great news because because the more my relationship with Jesus grows and the more I know myself, the more I've come to realize that I don't even really know what I need. I ask for lots of things and I think I need lots of things and I think I want lots of things, but I don't really know what I need. Daryl Johnson writes, we think we understand ourselves and are in touch with our desires, our longings, our fears, but we don't. (laughs) We lie to ourselves a lot. But the Father does. He knows what we need. And this frees us. Jesus' prayer here frees us from having to pray correctly. Can you just take a load off your shoulders for a minute? Because prayer is hard. It is hard. Who sticks with prayer very well for very long? It's difficult. But the freedom that Jesus gives us is, I don't have to pray correctly. Like, there's not just a a right way all the time. That's, that's freeing to me as an Gram one who feels like I have to do it the right way all the time. I'll take it. Um, and, and this prayer, this introduction to the prayer, it frees us from having to pray a lot. So just notice the simplicity. We are already freed from having to babble on and on and on and on, freed from having to obsess over the correct words. And when we see how short the prayer is, we're freed from the burden of feeling like we have to pray more and more and all day and all day and pack the words in. So how then, how then should we pray? Well, Jesus says, pray then in this way. And what, I'm, what I want to do is have us pray the Lord's Prayer. So Zoe's going to put it on the screen because you know there's like a zillion versions. Do we say trespasses and do we go King James and uh, these and thous and that? Zoe, go ahead and put, uh, put it on there. Did we? Oh, I'm getting. Oh, yeah, right there. Oh, okay. Everybody, turn around and look at that screen. Okay, there we go. Let's say this together or pray this together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and it, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And the other slide, the other slide, yay! And then there's more, but it's cut off. Okay, so...
having some difficulties here. All right. But that, we're, what we're going to do each time that we gather for the next few weeks as we're going through the Lord's Prayer is we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And my whole goal in these sermons isn't just to teach you stuff about the Lord's Prayer, but to get us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, back in 1535, Martin Luther published a little book on the Lord's Prayer called A Simple Way to Pray. And he never intended to write a book about the Lord's Prayer, but he was getting his hair cut one day where he always got his hair cut with his kind of acquaintance. They were somewhere in between friends and acquaintances, but the barber's name was Peter Beskendorf. And they became close and would talk about all kinds of things from brewing of ales to theology to all kinds of things. We don't know at all, but actually Luther has an incredibly large amount of just writings about regular stuff. I just like that about history. Okay, Um, so Luther and the barber are talking. The barber starts to ask Luther about prayer. And so he writes this little booklet, A Simple Way to Pray. And it talks about praying through the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. And in one part of this little, little booklet, Luther mentions that the Lord's Prayer is kind of like a garland. So this, this beautiful little garland, created by Sarah McFarland, by the way, she has her own Etsy channel, Sarah has a little shout out. Um, he said, is, said it's like a garland. And each phrase is like a strand that you can then hang other prayers on. You know, so for example, yeah, there's, a, there's a line in there that says, give us this day our daily bread. First of all, notice that it's all in the plural. Give us this day our daily bread. So it's not just talking about me. I'm already, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, I'm praying for other people as well. Every single time, every single phrase. Give us this day our daily bread. In the ancient world, bread meant bread, but it also meant everything that was basic to life. Food, shelter, clothing, relationships. And so you might think, okay, give us this day our daily bread. Who needs daily bread in my life? Who needs food and love and reconciliation? Could be world problems. Could be someone in your own life. Could be someone on the block. Okay? And, and it, can just, it can just be a springboard to all kinds of other prayers. And what we're going to do each week is we're going to take a phrase of the Lord's Prayer. And in your bulletin are two little pieces of paper because that's for if, if there's couples and you have one bulletin you can share. Um, and if you didn't get a bulletin, I won't notice if I will, but I won't say anything if you go back there and get one. Um, what we're going to do is when we take communion, we're going to drop those little prayers that you write in the jar. And if you want to take more time, you can do it after communion too. And what we're going to do as a community is we're going to build a prayer based on the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to pray it. It's going to build each week because we're going to add to it and add to it. And finally, by the end of this series, we'll have this beautiful collective um, that we can all pray together. Luther writes, now this is kind of archaic language, so stick with me. To this day, I suckle at the Lord's Prayer like a child. And as an old man, I eat and drink from it and never get my fill. It is the very best prayer, even better than the Psalter, which is so very dear to me. It is surely evident that a real master composed it and taught it. Luther brilliantly recognizes that the Lord's Prayer is not simply a matter of parroting the words of Jesus. He views the Lord's Prayer as a starting point to just see your prayer life blow up into all kinds of amazing directions. Uh, For the folks joining us at home, 
you don't have the little paper tags, and that is fine. You can still contribute, because Abby's going to put up the uh, info at Letter Street CC um, email address, and you can email that. Elizabeth and I see that email address, and we will write tags for you, and yours can be added to the garland each week, too. So I just want to encourage you to participate that way. Okay, so today we're going to go over the phrase, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's going to help us, I think, if I show you a little bit of Greek grammar, but we're going to do it in English. So, Zoe, do we have access to that slide with the Lord's Prayer? The structure, there it is. Oh, yes, so good. Okay, so I just want you to know, if, if the Greek grammar was just translated every word into English, and we didn't try to make it smooth like we do in translations like in our Bible, this is what we would see. Father would be the first word. Father, our the one in the heavens. Be hallowed, your name. Come, your kingdom. Be done, your will. And on earth as it is in heaven is the qualifier for all three of those first petitions. The hallowing of the name on earth as it is in heaven. The coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see how that works? We're just focusing on the first one, Father, our, the one in the heavens. Clearly, you notice the prominence of Father. That is not how you have to write that sentence in Greek. The Father's name is emphasized on purpose. It's moved to the front. It's awkward. Jesus wants to impress upon us that we may address God as Father just like He addresses God as Father. I believe in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's two-thirds of the Bible, God is referred to as Father about... 15 or 19 times, I can't remember, I just read Wesley Hill's book on this, and it's, I didn't write it down. So it's between 15 and 19. And he writes exquisitely, like how in those moments, in fact, Christine read one from the prophet Isaiah, about when those moments are, are, are God is revealed as Father, it's like, it's significant. We never in the Hebrew Scriptures see anyone address him directly as Father. They might say something like, Yahweh is our Father, but they would never say, Yahweh, Father, right? So there's a difference. There's a barrier there. But it's almost like setting us up for the hope that one day there'll be more relationship. Boom, enter the New Testament and the Gospels. And by the end that you get through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just those four books, you see direct addresses to God as Father 100 and 70 times. Again, that's quoting Wesley Hill. That's not my, I did not look that up. I read it in a book and I know it's so. Jesus wants to impress upon us that we're invited to address this God as Father. This is belonging language. Albert Hasse writes, the, our image, our image, how we think about God is one of the most, if not the most important aspects of spiritual formation. Is it, I, you need to hear that. He doesn't say prayer is the most important, fasting isn't, Bible reading, all those are important things. But your image of what God is like, your image of God is the most important aspect of spiritual formation. That's a significant statement. Now, I recognize that nobody in this room or in the world has a perfect father. 
And some have had such horrific experiences, experiences with their fathers that to perceive God as father is sometimes unhelpful. How then are we supposed to move forward with this? And by the way, fathers weren't all great in Jesus's day either. It's not like, oh, if we were just back to those good old days, then it would, no, Jesus is address, calling us to address God as father in a day when there's a bunch of screwed up dads too. I think the answer is somewhere found in Jesus. I'm not just going Sunday school answer on you here. But in his statement in John 14, 9, where he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has read the Gospels and seen Jesus in his gentleness and his strength, in his love of children and respect for women and acceptance of men, macho men, academic men, and sinful, all kinds of people. If they've seen him and read about him in his service to others to the point of giving himself to save the world, in this Jesus, we see what the father is like. And what a wonderful father he is if he's like that. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, allow it to be a catalyst for our own prayers, we can't help but begin in the right spot. We begin with God and not with ourselves. We begin with God as Father. In fact, the first three petitions, there's only six petitions, requests in the Lord's Prayer. And the first three of them, half of them, are all about God and his name and his kingdom and his will. And so the second thing I want to point out is that it is impossible for us to be selfish when we pray this prayer. You can try, but if you actually say it, it, it's not my father who's in heaven, it's our father. This is a family prayer. And when we pray the prayer that Jesus taught, we can imagine lifting up every other person from every church in every city and town in every country in the world because it is a family prayer. It is our father who is in heaven. It's relational and it's communal. Father, our, the one in the heavens. Now, why does Matthew include Jesus' phrase, the one in the heavens? I think this is an important reminder for us about two aspects of God. The Father is the one in the heavens. First of all, let's take the word the heavens. This is not a GPS position on God's location, as if there were a place called heaven that you could draw on a map or a star chart or something like that. It's metaphorical language to describe God's omnipresence and his otherness. God is, if anything, very other than we are. He's not part of the world He's not in the pantheistic worldview. God is part of the plants and animals and rocks and you and me. He's not part of us, but he made everything. He is very other than we are. The relationship at the center of the universe exists in a way that, frankly, we can't fully comprehend. In theological terms, he's transcendent. He is without beginning or end. There are no words to fully explain him, although when we look at Jesus, we get a great glimpse. And when we read the Hebrew scriptures, we get aspects and stories and images. But there's just no dictionary that says God is exactly like this. He's beyond us. 
The second thing is, so, so God is other. The heavens are saying, uh, by saying, Father, our, the one in the heavens, we are saying that you are other. You are holy. You are set apart. You are not the same as us. But then we are surrounded by the heavens. In the Hebrew scriptures and in Greek thinking, the heavens is just the air. And I'm not just talking about like the stratosphere, because that's how we talk about the heavens in our parlance, either the stars or up there. But in ancient thinking, the heavens are just the stuff around us that fills most of the space right here. God is very close at hand. He doesn't stand aloof and unreachable, uh, like at an unreachable distance. So when we pray, our Father, the one in the heavens, we're expressing that God is very near to every person and creature because the heavens touch every place on earth. And so we begin this prayer right out of the gate in a great starting point. We, we, we recognize that God is Father and that he's our Father and that he's not only a holy God, but he is a very with us God. And then Jesus says, the one, Jesus is the one who knows the heart of the Father intimately. And he, be, he, he teaches us to begin this prayer with three petitions, three requests. And I just got to think that if Jesus knows God so well, and he wants to share this relationship with us, he must know exactly what is important for us to be praying. It's interesting to me that he doesn't pray that God would make us more like Jesus or that he would give us powers to do miracles or he doesn't tell us to pray that we would advance God's kingdom. He doesn't, that's not in there. What is shockingly absent to our very fragile self-esteems is that there's nothing directly about us for half of this prayer. And what's even more strange, at least at a surface level, is that the first thing Jesus has us pray is that the Father's name, his name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. It's not exactly the most pressing need in the world, is it, that the Father's name would be hallowed? Or is it? One of the evil one's great strategies is to cause us to doubt the Father's love for us, to cause us to doubt his power and his goodness, his character. This was his first lie in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were an unbroken relationship with God and Satan tempted them to doubt God's goodness. And when they, be when they began to doubt, they took matters into their own hands and they took the forbidden fruit, thus basically saying, we're going to be the gods in this story. We're taking charge. We know what's best. Or at least we think you don't know what's best. The social ills of the world, violence and selfishness, it's all a result of people either making themselves out to be gods, which is what we get in atheism or in lukewarm Christianity, by the way. Lukewarm Christianity is just like, well... I don't really want to follow everything Jesus has to say because, like, I want to do what I want to do. That's, that's kind of idolatry. So that's, that's one spectrum. Or the other spectrum is that we make God into our own image. And so you've got, like, Christian nationalist God. Or we've got the God who wants you to live your best life now. 
Or we've got the God who's judgmental and harsh. Or we've got the God who supports everything you already wanted to be and do in your life. That's my favorite. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray that the Father's name would be hallowed. Now let's just, that's weird language. We don't, we don't talk about hallowed anymore, do we? So let's take this in reverse order. We've got hallowed and we've got name. What does it mean to be hallowed? To be hallowed is to be set apart as holy. To hallow something is to exalt it, to separate it out for special service or glory or worship. It's to reveal the special nature of someone or something to others. Okay, now second, what does it mean to hallow the Father's name? Well, in the ancient world, a person's name was like their resume, or kind of in a colloquial term, maybe their social media profile. It's like how they present themselves. It's what, it's, it reveals their character, their substance, what they actually, their track record. You know, the reason you have a resume is because if you just, because people lie. <laughs> uh, are you good at, would you be good at this job? Uh, do you tell the truth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you actually have to check the references and like find out, oh no, this person actually never showed up. Um, and, you know, we just, you know, so God's name, his character is what we're talking about, his track record. And the prayer is that the Father would make his name, his character, his reputation, his true identity known to the world. Literally, that the relationship at the center of the universe would be revealed for who they really are. That God would make himself known to every man and every woman and every child as he really is, not as we invent him to be. And that he would reveal himself truly to people so that the lies that we all believe about God would be replaced with the truth of his love and his glory. Because we all have it slightly off, don't we? I don't know that there's any one of us who has just the right image of God. We've all got baggage from our own dads and our own bad teaching that we've picked up. And I've even said some things I'm sure that will pan out in the end to be totally untrue or something like that. And I just apologize now. I'm trying my best. But like, that's why we need to pray this prayer. We don't need, like there's no perfect preacher or teacher or theologian. We need God, the Father, to reveal his character to us. And that's why Jesus calls us to pray. I'm blowing up over here. I'm like, oh, I totally completed all three of my, my rings. Go me. <laughs> I got to put this thing on theater mode when I'm preaching. Sorry about that. So then, so then if we continue on in this, we're confronted with our incredibly holy and incredibly loving Father, and we can begin to trust Him and worship Him, which frees us then to love one another without competition and without fear. Maybe what the world actually needs now more than anything else is for the Father to make himself known as he is in heaven. I want to encourage you now to think of your own sphere of life. How might the phrase, Father, our, the one in the heavens, hallow your name? How might that spur you on to pray? Maybe you need that more in your own life. Maybe there's someone, you're just, they just pop to mind right now. Maybe it's an organization or a specific person, 
or something in our culture or another culture or to know the love and the character of the father as he truly is. Maybe it's something about our father, the family of God that you want to pray about for the church, for this church, for the church, whatever it is. Whatever it is, jot it down on the paper provided to you or via email for those of you live streaming and take a moment um, let's take a moment of silence now just to, to jot those down. Um, and I'll give you instructions on that in a minute. 